The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. 10 years ago, I decided to spend £50,000. That's a lot of money. It's money I didn't have. To get the £50,000, I had to take out a loan, which to be fair, had favourable interest rates. But 10 years on, I'm still paying it back. In fact, I've only just finished paying off the interest. Paying off this loan, it'll take me decades. So what was that wonderful thing I decided to purchase for all that money? Well, it was my marketing degree. To be fair, it was handy. It got me a job and I learned some valuable lessons. But in all seriousness, despite studying marketing for three years, I didn't learn a thing about behaviour science. I was taught about strategies, funnels, accounting, and traditional marketing tactics. And sure, some of it was useful, but looking back, there was one big hole, and that was behavior science. I wish I'd learned more about behavior science at university, because today, it's the discipline I rely on the most to improve at my job. So to all those listening who are still at university, and to those who wish they knew more about the subject, here are three nudges I wished I'd learned. To share them, I'm talking to behaviour science expert, Caitlin Burgoyne. Here's Caitlin introducing herself. So I am Caitlin Burgoyne. I am fascinated by why so many big six, you know, companies that have raised a lot of money, that have really smart teams, were struggling and recognized that not really understanding customers, you know, what who their customers were, and more, most importantly, why those customers buy was the thing holding them back. And so that kind of has bridged all the work I do today. So I'm the CEO of Customer Camp and Customer Camp is a training company primarily. We do training, helping people to use, you know, specific research techniques to better understand buyers. And then we, on the other side, produce a lot of content, helping people to better understand their buyers, kind of bridging the marketing and psychology world. That's Caitlin. She studies the world of behaviour science and looks at how different biases can be applied to marketing. We'll talk through three biases today, starting with the recency bias. Here's Caitlin explaining what it is and why you need to know about it. Sure. So the recency bias, there were a number of studies that have looked at this, but it especially applies to when we are consuming uh, information kind of in a sequential order. So the idea behind the recency bias is we are more likely to remember the most recent information that we heard, and we'll often forget the earlier details um, with the exception of kind of the first thing we heard. So let's say that you were to go to a conference and at that conference, you you were to watch, you know, 10 speakers and all of them were good. Um, but the chances are that you're going to remember the one that you saw at the end and the one that came at the beginning more than perhaps the ones in the middle, assuming that they're all, you know, about the same in terms of like the quality of their content. So where might this apply in a business context? Let's say that you're 
in a meeting, you know, a Zoom call with your team, there's eight people on the call and somebody asks for a recommendation on which email software your team should be using and why. And everybody goes around the room and kind of shares the one that they think is going to be the best. Chances are the person who's trying to consume all that information and decide which one to go and look up next, they're going to remember the last one mentioned. And so when they go to Google, they're going to put in the one that they heard last. It's just going to probably stand out to them more. Again, assuming that all of the information was shared kind of in a similar fashion there wasn't one that really stood out and spoke to them. So, you know, it makes sense. Like we, our brains can't contain everything that's thrown at us in the run of a day. And so we need to get better at taking shortcuts to the stuff that matters. And when presented with a list of information, everything's kind of seemingly the same. We're, we're more likely to remember the last thing we heard. Works great when you're thinking about um, contacts where you're going to need to present information. You don't want to be in the middle. You want to either be the first one to present and you want to kind of like set the bar high at the beginning, or you want to be the last one to present because being in the middle can often be the place where everything's blurred out and maybe your ideas don't make it through to decision makers. The recency bias suggests that when we're presented with information, we don't weigh it all evenly. Instead, we give heavy preference to the last thing we heard. A classic example of recency bias comes from an analysis of court cases and verdicts. Studies show that information presented later in the trial has a higher likelihood of swaying the verdict than info that's presented earlier on. This is why lawyers put so much effort into crafting that perfect closing statement. Your customers will do the same. They'll also store recent details in their memory. So deciding how you present your information to customers can have a huge impact on how customers make decisions. But this isn't just a bias you should consider with new customers. No, it's important for existing customers as well. Changing the final experience those existing customers have with your brand can improve their overall experience. Now, a wonderful example of this is Octopus Energy. Now, once you've paid your bills and left your meter reading, most energy suppliers would encourage you just to leave the site. But Octopus don't. They offer you a free spin on their Wheel of Fortune. Spin the wheel and you get the chance to win up to £500 off your next bill. It's a small and easy application of the recency bias that just improves how customers feel about the service. Another great example is from Dishoom, a London-based curry house. On Monday to Friday before 6pm, Dishoom finishes each meal with something a bit more exciting than the bill. They bring out the matka. The rules of the matka are simple. Roll a six with a dice and you get your whole meal for free. As you can imagine, this is a, it's a really exciting dice roll, a one in six chance to get your meal for free. And it utilizes that recency bias. Now we'll remember that final experience fondly, even if we don't win. And that means our lasting impression of the whole trip to the restaurant will be positive, even if the service was a bit sluggish, or even if the starter was cold. Now you can check out both of those examples for Octopus and Dishim in the show notes if you want to learn more. But now let's head on to the second nudge, loss aversion. Here's Caitlin explaining what it is and how to apply it. 
I think the best way, so to, I know you've covered this before, but like loss aversion is this idea that it's actually two times more painful to lose a dollar than it is to gain a dollar. And therefore people are willing to do more not to lose oftentimes than they are with the same opportunity to gain the same amount, which is, you know, counterintuitive. It, do, it doesn't make sense, but it's the way that people function. And I think from a marketer's perspective, some of the ideas that come to me that could be really compelling is basically giving people something that if they don't use it within a certain time frame, they lose it. So oftentimes we'll give people coupons or we'll give people, um, you know, a free Uber when they started, they had the opportunity to have a free, you could give out a free car ride, but oftentimes there's not an expiry date on these things. It's just like, you know, use your coupon when you want to, and the, or the expiry date is so far in the future that we're not compelled to move quickly. So I think be giving people expiring offers is, is one opportunity because if they don't use it by a certain point, they're going to lose it. This in the online course world, the way that they use this, I think, which is really clever, it's kind of become a standard is for a lot of, you know, cohort based courses. Um, typically there's a, like a window where the sales window is open. So it might only be a week where you have the opportunity to buy this program and then it's closed again and you can't buy again until next year or next quarter or whatever. But even within that frame, what people often do, which is quite genius, is they have bundles of bonus offers that if you buy today, you get the, the bonuses. And they seem to start out like day one is when you're going to get the best bonuses, the ones that are the most valuable. And if you don't buy today, you can still buy tomorrow, but you won't get those bonuses. So there's that kind of loss aversion. It's like, you know, this is here, there's this opportunity, but if I don't act now, I'm going to lose it. And, you know, I'm really feeling compelled to buy this program. I think I'm going to do it. I might as well act today. So creating that kind of like short cart open period is one tactic for loss aversion, but then within that actually having offers that you can only get by acting now is a, is a clever way. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Now, I've spoken about this before on Nudge, but my all-time favorite example of loss aversion is probably from Amazon Prime. Now, they know that losses loom larger than gains. So when you try to unsubscribe from Amazon Prime, they don't tell you about all the benefits you'll miss out on in the future, like free delivery or Prime TV. Instead, they highlight the actual savings that you'll lose. When I tried to cancel, they said, you've saved £313 in delivery fees since 2019, are you sure you want to lose these savings? <laughs> it's a great example of loss aversion and one that makes it really difficult to unsubscribe. And you can check out that example in the show notes as well. Anyway, back to Caitlin with another example of loss aversion in action. 
Another example I've heard that I thought was genius was one that uh, Melinda Palmer, who I know you've had on the on the show, I'm a big fan of hers. She shared when she, I think this is work that she did when she was working with the credit union. But what they did was they essentially gave people money in their account. It was like you know a hundred dollars or something like that. And if you were to, I think the the offer was you had to book a call to talk about um, opening a savings account and that hundred dollars went into your checking account. Um, but it, you know, it was not available until you booked that call to talk about having that savings account. And if you didn't book a call, then that money went away. So people could physically see it in their accounts. It was there, it was theirs. And if they didn't act within a certain time frame, it would no longer be there. So I think things like that, our ways to apply it. Essentially, it's just, you know, people are resistant to acting when we're not given and when we're not really uh, forced isn't the right word. But if there's if there's no consequence to not acting today, we'll think about it, we'll mull it over. And so loss aversion, it's about creating consequence, right? It's about um, allowing people to see that if they don't act now, they're actually going to lose out on something. In fact, Without loss aversion, we probably wouldn't have the TV show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. When the team behind Who Wants to Be a Millionaire pitched the idea to TV broadcasters, they hit a roadblock. No broadcaster was willing to give away a million pounds. It was too much. Most game shows, they gave away a couple of grand, maybe 50 grand max. But a million? That was ridiculous. The folks behind the show met with broadcaster after broadcaster, but all of them turned them down. In their last meeting with ITV's David Liderman, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire producer, Paul Smith, decided to try a different tactic. The start of the meeting went as expected. David from ITV said they could never afford to give away a million. So Paul Smith tried something different. He said, let's play the game. I've got the questions. For every question you get right, I'll pay out in full. Paul Smith essentially offered the million pounds away himself. Now David, he knew this was too good to turn down, so he played. David got the first question right, then the second, then the third, and he'd racked up 500 pounds. Paul Smith gave him the whole 500 in a check and said, that's yours unless you want to double it by answering the next question and he put the envelope containing the £500 down next to David, just like they do in the show. Smith asked David the next question, then he showed him the four choices. David started discussing them with his co-workers. It was a tough question. He thought he knew the answer, but he wasn't certain. Plus, he had a cheque for £500 next to him, and he, he didn't want to lose that money. So he frowned and said to Paul, No. I'm going to take the £500 instead. And at that point, Paul Smith knew he'd sold the idea because David saw that he wouldn't lose a million pounds every episode because he had experienced loss aversion. And so David Litterman was hooked. In fact, he loved the TV show so much that he arranged to run the show every single night of the week. And Who Wants to Be a Millionaire went on to pull in bigger audiences than EastEnders, which in the UK, well, that's a big deal. It's a fantastic example of loss aversion in practice. And if you want to learn more about this example, go check out Dave Trott's book, The Power of Ignorance. That's where I got this example from. Anyway, let's head back to Caitlin, who explains the final nudge that I wish I'd learned at university. It's the foot in the door technique. 
Here's Caitlin explaining the nudge. So the idea is that we are more likely to agree to a bigger commitment after we've already made a small one. And there's some interesting studies about this. For instance, there's one study, I believe this might've been in Alchemy that they talked about this, um, Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy, where they talk about a, um, I think that was a, it was a, fundraising or it was a charity that was fundraising. And I think it was about recycling, perhaps. I might be getting the details of this wrong, but I think the story will still hold up. So they first had sent people out and asked them, you know, how they felt about recycling and whether they were proponents of it. And people said, yes, I'm, I'm a big proponent of this. And then they said, well, would you be willing to put the sticker on your door that says that this is something that you believe in? And people said, absolutely, no problem. And so stickers went up. And then anybody who said yes to the sticker Weeks later, um, a fundraiser went back to those houses and asked them to make a donation because once they'd already made that small commitment, it's almost like that would have become part of their identity. And then they were more willing to make that bigger commitment. That's the foot in the door technique. And it links nicely with Robert Cialdini's work. There's a brilliant study in Cialdini's book, Influence, on this exact bias. He ran an experiment designed to get psychology students at Ohio State University to perform a pretty unpleasant activity, at least for these students. It was to wake up very early and participate in a a 7am study on thinking processes. The twist was in how Cialdini asked his students. For one set of students, he said, I'm running an experiment on thinking processes at 7am. Will you be available to join me? In this scenario, only 24% of the students agreed. However, when he called up the second set of students, he tried the foot in the door technique. He first asked the students if they wanted to participate in a study on thinking processes. And in that scenario, now 56% said, yes, yes, we would. And then after they said they would agree, he mentioned the 7am start and he gave them a chance to change their mind. He said the 7am work for you. But the foot in the door technique had taken hold. No one decided to change their mind after initially agreeing. Cialdini got twice as many students to wake up before dawn by applying the foot in the door technique. It's a great lesson. Don't ask for everything at once. Break your ask down and secure commitment early on. So you can see this in, you know, it's a tactic that charities um, can and should be using. And it's a tactic that you see in how we consume information and, and, uh, and how we kind of like utilize products as well. So with a lot of forms now, the forms are broken up into multi steps. I mean, that seems obvious. It's, you know, getting people to, to, it's putting less cognitive load on people instead of seeing, you know, the 40 questions on the page, which might make us go, eh, no thanks. We see the first one and it's easy to answer. So we answer it. And then we see the next one and that's easy to answer. So we answer it. And then by the time we've done four, then they get into the trickier one where maybe we need to go get our wallet and pull out our card or we have to write it an answer, but we've already committed to four. So are we just going to give up now? Or are we going to keep going? But with a lot of um, things, if you start with the bigger ask, people might just say no. But when you start with a much smaller ask, it's easier to get them to yes. And you see this again, like in the 
um, especially in the infopreneur world, which is the world that I'm in as a trainer, is you'll see kind of like small offers leading up to larger ones. So you're kind of laddering up to your offer. You start with a small offer, you deliver value, then you get maybe ask for a bigger offer and a bigger offer and a bigger offer until they're kind of at your core offer, the thing where it's really your money generator, but asking them to go right there can be hard, but once you've delivered value and you've made a small ask and they've seen kind of your ability to deliver value, there's the trust is being built and then you can ladder them up to your bigger offer. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for today. I really hope you enjoyed this one. I regularly think about these three nudges, but I haven't spoken about them too much on the show. So I hope you enjoyed hearing about them. If you did, please go give the show a review. I really appreciate and read every single one. And subscribe wherever you listen. That's that's really important. A lot of you listen but don't subscribe. But if you subscribe, it really helps out the show and helps us get to the top of those Apple charts and Spotify charts. Please also go and check out Caitlin's content. Her newsletter is absolutely brilliant. Every week, she looks at a nudge, looks at a bias, and breaks it down to explain how to apply it to marketing. If you like this show, you'll love that newsletter. So I've dropped a link to the newsletter in the show notes. She also runs a brilliant Twitter account too. So go check that out as well. And if you are in the hunt for good newsletters, then please do check out Nudge's newsletter. I also share tips every week on applying behavior science to marketing. I can't say it's as detailed as Caitlin's work, but it definitely provides you little nuggets to go away and test in your job. So there's a link to the Nudge newsletter in the show notes if you want to sign up to that. Anyway, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening and give me a shout if you've got any feedback. Cheers.